politicians come to town and kiss babies till their noses turn brown. You can bet your bottom dollar they want your vote. So speak your mind, because believe it or not, this world has become a big melting pot. It's easy to get yourself lost in the lot, because the world's made up of all kinds of people, so vote. Don't you never mind the weather, get your butt in the booth and pull down the lever, vote. For worse off or better, let your voice be heard. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 26th day of October, 2008. Well, as you can tell by the fact that you're hearing my voice right now, our fundraising drive to raise money for the excess bandwidth that our website has been using this month because of our immense popularity has been successful. Within three days, we were able to raise the necessary funds, and now we are able to continue the podcast and website through the end of the month. I cannot possibly express enough thanks to all of those who contributed or offered to contribute to the chip-in event, and also to all of those who wrote emails giving suggestions and other advice regarding the situation. Again, This podcast is only possible because of you, the listeners, so all the thanks goes to you. I would like to stress that we've already upgraded our hosting package for unlimited bandwidth as of November 1st, so this will never be an issue again. Also, again, thanks to your support, some more important news from the Corbett Report will be coming out next weekend as we attend the second International 9-11 Truth Conference which is being held in various places around Japan over the coming weekend. We will be attending the event held in Osaka on Saturday, November 1st. So, of course, if you happen to be in the area, please drop by and say hello. We will be providing a report from that location, hopefully a video report. And if so, that will be going up on the website in the coming weeks. At the very least, we'll have an audio report and update about that Truth Conference, which includes keynote speaker David Ray Griffin. Some very exciting things going on there. And if you're interested in that conference or more information about it, please go to our interviews section, where we have just added an interview with Yumi Kikuchi, the organizer of the second International 9-11 Truth Conference taking place in Japan. And now, without further ado... Let's get to today's real news. Our first story comes from MoneyWeek.com, October 23rd, 2008. The credit crunch claims its biggest victim, Argentina. The credit crisis could be about to claim its biggest victim so far. It started with subprime borrowers, moved on to banks, and has now progressed on to whole countries. Iceland has already virtually thrown in the towel, and now Argentina has returned to the verge of bankruptcy. It's all further proof that the decoupling concept is a load of junk, as well as another big sign that the crunch is a very long way from reaching the finishing straight. In fact, things have now got so bad that the state has decided to take over $29 billion of the country's privately managed pension funds to get its hands on some cash. This is being presented as an emergency move to meet financing costs that have soared as commodity prices have tumbled. In a breathtaking piece of bravado, President Christina Kirchner said that proposal would protect retirees from the global financial crisis, according to Bloomberg, while denying she was trying to grab the cash to pay off debt or to finance new programs or projects. Pull the other one. The last time Argentina sought to tap into worker savings was just before that 2001 default. For now, the funds being targeted are just retirement accounts, but the entire $97 billion pool of private pensions contains a lot of juicy and much-needed hard currency. Understandably, this hasn't gone down at all well in the money markets. 
It's the final of many nails in the coffin from an institutional investor perspective, said Bill Rudman at West LB Mellon Asset Management. Argentina is disappearing into irrelevance. It's all a classic sign that the decoupling concept, whereby some areas of the planet remain unaffected by the woes of the rest of the world, is as big a load of junk as all those Argentine bonds. Our second story this week comes from naturalnews.com, October 24th, 2008. FDA conspired with chemical industry to declare bisphenol A harmless. The FDA has been caught red-handed conspiring with the chemical industry to conclude that bisphenol A, the plastics chemical, is harmless to human health. As revealed by the Environmental Working Group, the FDA based its evaluation of BPA on a report authored by the American Chemistry Council, a trade group that represents chemical companies and plastics manufacturers. The FDA's evaluation concluded that BPA was perfectly safe for customers of any age, including infants. This conclusion stands in direct opposition to the Canadian government, which declared BPA to be a toxic chemical on October 18th and moved towards banning the chemical in baby bottles. Even the U.S. National Institutes of Health says BPA may be dangerous, admitting it is concerned about BPA's effects on development of the prostate gland and brain, and for behavioral effects in fetuses, infants, and children. Our final story this week comes from Infowars.net, October 21st, 2008. Colin Powell warns of coming crisis we don't even know about right now, echoes Biden comments that Obama will be tested in early days of his term. Colin Powell has made bizarre comments that echo the recent declaration by Democratic VP candidate Joe Biden that there will be an international crisis early into Barack Obama's presidency that will test the new president by forcing him to make unpopular decisions. Speaking on Meet the Press two days ago, Powell officially endorsed Obama and also made the following statement. The problems will always be there, and there's going to be a crisis which will come along on the 21st, 22nd of January that we don't even know about right now. So I think what the president has to start to do is to start using the power of the Oval Office and the power of his personality to convince the American people and convince the world that America is solid that America is going to move forward, we're going to fix our economic problems, we're going to meet our overseas obligations. Is Colin Powell referring to a theoretical crisis that could occur at any time? If so, why does he choose a specific date within the first two days after the inauguration? Also, why does he refer to general problems that the new president will have to deal with in a separate context? We are already in an economic crisis, everyone knows that. So what new crisis is Powell talking about? Whatever you read into Powell's comments, they sound somewhat bizarre, particularly as they come on the back of Joe Biden's guarantee of a, quote, generated crisis to test the mettle of the new leader within six months of the new presidential term. We shouldn't be surprised at Powell's comments, however, given that the former Secretary of State seemingly has a knack for predicting events before they take place. Previous to the beginning of the Iraq War, in February 2003, an audio tape containing a voice described as that of Osama bin Laden was touted as proof positive of al-Qaeda links with Saddam Hussein. Hours before the tape was discovered and aired by TV channel Al Jazeera, Powell announced in the U.S. Senate that a bin Laden tape is coming proving Iraq's links with al-Qaeda. This led some to raise the question, how does Colin Powell know what Al Jazeera are going to broadcast before they do? In an amazing and timely coincidence, the tape came barely a week after Powell's attempts to link Al-Qaeda and Saddam in his botched presentation of lies and exaggerations before the UN Security Council. on 
If you planned on following the presidential election in November, you might want to plug your ears. A big election spoiler is coming up. A minor software glitch at the Diebold Corporation today caused thousands of electronic voting machines to accidentally release the results of the 2008 presidential election months ahead of schedule. According to the group of military and corporate leaders that has chosen every American president since Eisenhower, Diebold's mistake marks the first time the nation's leader has been revealed prematurely. I don't even know if I can enjoy the sham election now that I know who's going to win. If you can't trust your shadowy overlords to keep it secret, what is the purpose, really, of voting in the public democracy? Uh, I'm fine with it. I mean, he was going to get my meeting this vote anyway. Despite the leak, all of the presidential candidates have so far said they'll continue their campaigns. Hillary Clinton isn't about to give up just because she lost the election. She'll give up when she's supposed to on election day. And she'll act surprised. Joining us now to talk about the leaked results is Diebold PR spokesman Ernie Kenilworth. Mr. Kenilworth, this was quite a mistake. And we at Diebold would like to formally apologize to all of our shadowy puppet masters. This will not happen again. Please have mercy on us. Do you think that people will still even vote in this election? We certainly hope they will. This country is based on the fantasy that the government is the voice of the people. Uh, going through the motions of voting and uh, keeping the kingmaker's dealing secret is uh, central to our culture. Why do, why do we need electronic voting machines in the first place? They're just not as reliable as our cloaked masters, no matter how good the software gets. Well, I understand people's concerns, but from now on, we at Diebold will see to it that uh, we properly safeguard the illusion of democracy for all Americans. Well, let's hope so. So, for those of us who will watch, what can we expect on election night? Oh, the same great show that you have always seen. Uh, we will be pretending to count votes, and uh, we will be running a, a, an ongoing total throughout the night. But wouldn't it be possible for them to just choose a different president so that we'll still have that same great surprise? No, I don't think so. However, uh, that does not rule out the possibility for a staged assassination uh, after the president has been placed in office. Oh, I take it that's a hint. You won't get anything else out of me today, Gina. I've already <laughs> said too much. All right. Well, thank you for being with us, Mr. Kenilworth. After the break, researchers say they have... Welcome to episode 61 of the Corbett Report. Your vote doesn't count. I'm sure we all enjoyed listening to that Onion news report, of course a mock satirical news report, about how Diebold voting systems accidentally leaked the result of the 2008 election ahead of time. Now of course this report is for comedic purposes, but comedy that satirizes social and political systems is important to analyze because comedy works by articulating those underlying assumptions and hidden truths that we're not allowed to speak in public for whatever reason. So, of course, the comedy in this piece relies on being able to talk about the dark overlords running the system and the fact that the diebold voting machines are completely rigged. Again, these are truths which many people understand at a certain level, or feel to be true, but are prohibited from talking about in serious political discourse by the bounds imposed upon us by the corporate-controlled media. Thus, the humor of the Onion News piece. So, of course, many people do have genuine and quite valid concerns about putting their votes into these voting machines, which then pump out a number at the end of the evening. Can these types of machines be trusted? Most people would answer no, but a large number of people would not be able to cite any facts to back up that gut-level assumption. So, let's take a look at some facts. I'm going to play the audio of video that comes from Judiciary Committee hearings that took place in Ohio in 2004 to discuss election irregularities in the Bush-Kerry election. We are about to listen to the stunning testimony of one Clint Curtis. This is the absolutely key information, the facts backing up our underlying gut-level feelings about things like voting machines. For those who want to understand the facts and not merely laugh about our societal assumptions, this is key information. Let's listen closely to the testimony of Clint Curtis. Mr. Curtis, would you please state your full name for the record? My name is Clinton Eugene Curtis. And where do you reside? Tallahassee, Florida. And what is your profession? 
I'm a computer programmer. Would you please speak into the microphone so the audience can hear your testimony? I'm a computer programmer. Mr. Curtis, are there programs that can be used to secretly fix elections? Yes. How do you know that to be the case? Because in October of 2000, I wrote a prototype for President Congressman Tom Feeney at the company I worked for in Oviedo, Florida, that did just that. And when you say did, did just that, it would rig an election? It would flip the vote 51-49 to whoever you wanted it to go to and whichever race you wanted to win. And would that program that you designed be something that elections officials that might be on county boards of elections could detect? They'd never see it. Mr. Would you answer that question once again? They would never see it. So how would such a, such a program, a secret program that uh, fixes the election, how could it be detected? You would have to view it either in the source code or you'd have to have a receipt and then count the hard paper against the actual vote total. Other than that, you won't see it. All right, Mr. Curtis, uh, if you had been asked, you or others with your professional expertise had been asked to design a protected program to, that would protect the Ohio elections from against, against such software to fix the election, could you have done so? If we've been asked to make a program that could fix the election, sure, anybody can do it. No, could you have designed a program or a procedure or a protocol that would have protected Ohio against this kind of rigging? No, you have to look at the source code. You have to get probably programmers from both or all parties to look at the source code and determine if there's anything in there that shouldn't be there. I mean, it's a simple program. You're adding one to a person's total. It's a hundred lines of code tops. There's All right. If, uh, are you aware of whether there was any protective action in Ohio against this kind of vote rigging through software? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. You were, you were not asked to assist in the development of any protective system. Is that correct? No, I was not. In Europe, have you uh, reviewed at all the election results in Ohio? No, I haven't. Okay. Given the availability of such uh, vote rigging software and the testimony that has been given under oath of substantial statistical anomalies and gross dis dis differences between exit polling data and the actual tabulated results, do you have an opinion whether or not Ohio election, the Ohio election, presidential election, was hacked? Yes, I would say it was. I mean, if you're, if you have exit polling data that is significantly off from the vote, then it's probably hacked. And your testimony is under oath. Yes, sir. And the testimony you've given is true. Yes, sir. Thank you. Congresswoman Stephanie Pepsdale, Congresswoman Waters and I have the same question. Come back to the podium. Who did you say you were asked to prepare? I was asked by Tom Feeney. He's now a congressman. At that time, he was uh, Speaker of the House of Florida, Yang Enterprises, which was the company I worked for, lobbyist, and their corporate attorney. He wore a lot of hats. And at the time, he was the Speaker of the House of Florida, is that what you said? Yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Congressman. You say he was the, the lobbyist for the voting machine company at the same time he was Speaker of the House? I don't know what the voting machine company is. He was a lobbyist for Yang Enterprises. We had NASA contracts. And, and Yang Enterprises did what? Computers? Computers. Okay, and he was your lobbyist? Your he company's was lobbyist. lobbyist for that company, yes. And he asked you to design a... To, see, to design a code to rig an election? Yes. While he was Speaker of the Florida House? Yes. This was during or previous to the 2000 election? Yes, October, end of September. And did he ever express why he wanted a code to rig an election? No, I immediately assumed that they were trying to keep you guys from cheating them. So, <laughs> so I wrote up the documentation of what you would look for in the source code, how you would make sure that you didn't get, you know, taken advantage of, make sure that all voting machines had receipts because that way you could back count the ones that looked a little funny. And I handed it over. By receipts, you mean a paper trail? Yes, paper trail. And I handed that in to Mrs. Yang and said, Here's your report, here's your program. And she said, You don't understand, we need to hide the fraud in the source. 
in the source code. Hide the fraud, not reveal the fraud. Not reveal the fraud because it's needed to, con to control the boat in South Florida, was what she said. Whoa, That's what she said. To your, knowledge, to your knowledge, was this used? I have no idea. I, I was ready to leave. So, <laughs> so and, I retired and left the company. Your testimony a moment ago, I think you said just before you left and answered the Congresswoman Tubbs Jones question. The, would you just repeat what you said in terms of uh, the, the uh, exit polls? Oh, the exit polls should not be significantly different than the vote. And if they were, you would conclude what? I would conclude someone's playing with the vote. Now with the exit polls? That's possible too. Okay. Something, why something would, is definitely skewed. Something is skewed in one or the other above. Right. To select which one, you'd have to see where the problem is. Let me ask you one further question. Assuming for the moment that such software, that's what you call it, such software to, to rig a vote was used in one or more machines in Ohio or in Florida, could you today detect that if you looked at the source code? If you get the machines and they have not been patched yet, I mean, once they get in and touch them, anything can happen. You can also set timers to do that, but then you see the timers. Then you'd have to take those machines, decompile them, which I couldn't do, but possibly a Microsoft, an MIT, something could do. You might, you might be able to see it. You might. Not Depends on how good they are at destroying what they had. Destroying what they had by tamping the machine afterwards or by programming a, a destroyed uh, instruction in the first place. Right, because since you didn't... Both, either or both? Either or both. You, you didn't actually see what's in there, so you don't know if the code is running in a single executable or running in various modules. If it's running modules, you can make the code actually eat itself. Let me ask you one further question. We've, I have heard, I've been told, that people who assume that lots of the election results, or that a large fraction of the election results in any state may have been affected by uh, deliberate fraud in the computer are, are paranoid because they, in order to do that, you'd have to have access to thousands of machines and that, that would be readily detectable. To what extent is that true? It depends on the technology you use. If you did a central tabulation machine that fed in, all you'd have to do is set a flag. You set a flag, the central tabulation central tabulation machine would then flip your vote. So if you, so one person putting in bad code in a central tabulation machine could affect thousands and thousands or tens of thousands of votes. Right, and you could activate and, You could activate either automatically or you could make it so that there's code existing on like an electronic machine that feeds it where you would punch it in, it would set the flag, the server would see the flag and then... And if you had a recount, uh, and there were no, like, no paper trail. Would that be, assuming that that had happened, would that be revealable by seeing a discrepancy between what the tabulator, central tabulator showed and what the individual machines, which had not been tampered with, showed? Not if I wrote it. Why not? In other words, in other words... I would make it match. You could, you could work back from the tabulator to the individual machines, so the tabulator would tell the machines to switch their results? Yes. It talks both ways. Co you can flip it whatever you need. And they actually do talk to each other, the, yes. the machines and the tech. As long as it was networked together, they could talk to each other. So in other words, there's absolutely no assurance whatsoever on anything with regard to these machines. Absolutely none, unless you look at the source code and make sure it's safe before it goes out. Thank you very much. Thank you, Congressman Mathers. Uh, I know that Congresswoman Waters has a question, then Senator Miller, and then... Once again, that testimony is key information from a key whistleblower inside one of the companies attempting to construct code that would help flip a vote in an election. Again, that was the testimony of Clint Curtis, a former employee of a Florida-based company named Yang Enterprises. Clint Curtis is currently running for Congress as an independent in Florida's 24th district, and you can find out more information about his campaign at clintcurtis.com. And of course, one of the key issues Clint Curtis is campaigning on is verifiable elections. So any of my listeners in the 24th District is highly encouraged to get involved with Clint Curtis's campaign. Once again, this information is vital, and I'd like to reiterate some of it, which comes from a sworn affidavit 
which Clint Curtis swore to on December 6th, 2004. Quote, 1. I, Clint Curtis, swear that the following is true and correct. 2. I was born in Illinois and I am 46 years old. I graduated from college at Illinois State University with a degree in political science history and later started my own company and learned to write computer software programs. 3. In the mid-1990s, I moved to Florida and later got a job with Yang Enterprises in Oviedo, Florida in August 1998 as a computer programmer. I became the lead programmer for YEI and had daily meetings with YEI CEO Mrs. Lee Woan Yang. At the time, I was a lifelong registered Republican. 4. In the early fall of 2000, a man came into YEI and was introduced to me as Tom Feeney, future Speaker of the House of Representatives in Florida, as well as YEI's corporate counsel and lobbyist. 5. I sat in meetings with Mr. Feeney on at least a dozen occasions over the next several months, and we discussed several potential projects to determine their viability. In short, I was the technology advisor to Mr. Feeney on these proposals. After these consultations, Mr. Feeney would advise YEI on how best to procure the contracts for these projects. 6. During a meeting in late September or October of 2000 at YEI, there were four people present, including myself, Tom Feeney, Mike Cohen, Mrs. Yang, and to the best of my recollection, two other YEI employees came in and out of the room during the course of the meeting. Mr. Feeney said that he wanted to know if YEI could develop a prototype of a voting program that could alter the vote tabulation in an election and be undetectable. He was very specific in the design and specifications required for this program. He detailed in his own words that A, the program needed to be touchscreen capable, B, the user should be able to trigger the program without any additional equipment, C, the programming to accomplish this remain hidden even if the source code was inspected. 7. Shortly thereafter, as directed, I created the vote fraud software prototype by making a software program where each candidate is represented as an element of an array of controls. Each candidate is listed in a database and their number corresponds to where you want them to show up in that array. When the program starts, it reads the database and takes the number assigned to the candidate and fills in the label with the index that matches that number. That allows the program to work dynamically. It doesn't matter who the candidate is, as they have been equated to the index number assigned. From a normal perspective, it allows the voter to select the candidate, click on the submit button, and the candidate's selected previous vote total is then increased by one. In the vote fraud prototype that I created, things were not what they seemed. Hidden on the screen were invisible buttons. A person with knowledge of the locations of those invisible buttons could then use them to alter the votes of any candidate listed. By clicking the correct order of invisible buttons, the candidate selected by the user is compared to other candidates within that same race. If the candidate they selected is leading the race, nothing happens. If the other candidate is leading the race, the vote totals are altered so that the selected candidate is now leading the race with 51% of the vote. The other candidates then share the remaining 49% in exact proportion to the totals they had previously. In the prototype supplied to Feeney, the vote totals showed on the screen. In an actual application, the user would receive no visible clues to the fraud that had just occurred. Since the vote is applied by race, any single race or multiple races can be altered. The supervisors or any other voter would never notice this fraud, since no visible sign would appear. Additionally, the procedure could be repeated as many times as was necessary to achieve the desired results. No amount of testing or simulations would expose the fraud, as its activation and process is completely invisible to everyone, except the person programming the vote fraud routine. 9. I gave the software program, which was on a CD disk, and the report that was on disk and on paper, to Mrs. Yang. I stressed that she and Mr. Feeney could view the operation of the program and then see how to detect such fraudulent source code so it could be prevented. She immediately stated, You don't understand. In order to get the contract, we have to hide the manipulation in the source code. This program is needed to control the vote in South Florida. 
I was shocked that they were actually trying to steal the election and told her that neither I nor anyone else could produce any such program. She stated that she would hand in what I had produced to Feeney and left the room with the software. End quote. Again, that comes from a sworn affidavit of Clint Curtis. And again, for all of the documents cited in each and every one of my podcasts, please go to CorbettReport.com and click under today's episode to find the documentation. Clint Curtis's story is, of course, shocking, especially as Tom Feeney was the Speaker of the House of Representatives of Florida and also connected to Jeb Bush when he ran as Jeb Bush's running mate in the 1994 gubernatorial elections in Florida. It's important to note, however, that this election fraud being perpetrated at the level of the source code of some of the companies involved with the voting machine companies is not limited to this one case or this one person's sworn testimony. On the contrary, it's backed up by numerous claims by numerous researchers working on the problem from numerous angles. Of course, voting machines can take many different forms, from optical scanners to touchscreen displays, and each form, each model, each brand, each make, functions in a slightly different way. It's important to note that election fraud is possible in almost any form with almost any type of machine. Something that is covered in excellent and exquisite detail by one of the most important works on the subject, an HBO documentary entitled Hacking Democracy, which I'm sure that many of my listeners have seen already, and if you haven't, you must. Right now I'd like to play an assembly of clips from Hacking Democracy that talk in more detail about hacking election voting machines and also details the story of some of the people who have been exposing this election fraud for the past several years. One of those people is Bev Harris, someone featured quite prominently in the Hacking Democracy documentary, whose website can be found at blackboxvoting.org. We'll talk more about Bev Harris and blackboxvoting.org later on, but right now, let's listen to some selected clips from the ultimate documentary on election fraud, Hacking Democracy. Computers count around 80% of America's votes. It's the counties that run elections and buy voting machines. So the make and model varies from place to place. But there are two major types. On a touchscreen machine, the software counts the selections you make on the screen. Optical scan machines read a paper ballot that you have voted on. Seven o'clock, polls are closed. The votes themselves are stored on the computer's memory cards. This is the voter cartridge. This cartridge is very important, and it goes right into our bag. There it is. These memory cards are taken to a master computer, sometimes called the central tabulator which reads the votes, adds them up, and then declares the winner. The problem is that you can't see a computer adding up the votes. So, how do you know if it's counted correctly? Suppose that we didn't have any computers at all. And when you went to vote, the voting booth was separated by a curtain, and there was a guy behind the curtain who would write down your votes. So you just dictate them, he writes them down, and when you're done, you leave without being able to look at the ballot. Most people in their right mind would not trust this process. The guy behind the curtain could be incompetent, he could hear your votes wrong and record them improperly, or it could be that he doesn't like your political affiliation and would prefer to see your votes cast for someone else. In an electronic voting machine, you don't have a little guy inside the machine taking dictation, but you have lots of people who are involved in writing the software and lots of people who could have touched the software before it went into that machine. If one of those people puts something malicious in the software and it's distributed to all the machines, then that one person could be responsible for the change of possibly tens of thousands of votes, maybe even hundreds of thousands across the country. That's a very dangerous situation. You know, I began looking into these voting machines, and one reason I was so curious is because it's a secret how they work. The companies that make them keep it a secret 
none of the computer scientists felt they could even look at the code because the code was supposed to be a secret. The certification labs that examine it keep their process a secret of what they do, and even the election officials who buy the equipment are prohibited by their contract from ever looking and seeing how it works. What happened next really changed my life. I was looking for technicians who could perhaps answer some questions of mine, and while I was looking for technicians, I stumbled upon an obscure web page. The web page was an old uh, predecessor of the Diebel election systems page, and I clicked the link. And that link took me to a site that was not a web page, but it was more like a library or an online filing system. And it contained a, a bunch of different files, just like you see on your computer. And within those were more files, and within those were more files. And the files were amazing. They were things like the software specifications, the software itself, the drawings for the hardware, the user manuals, passwords in some cases. It was the crown jewels for Diebold election systems. Bev didn't know it, but what she'd just found was a computer program called GEMS. GEMS, made by the Diebold Corporation, counts around 40% of America's votes. So I began downloading these files and throughout the night I continued to download them. Throughout the weekend I continued to download them. There were so many files. It took about 40 hours to download all the files there were. And then I knew I would be working on this project for a long, long time. Up to this point, only the voting machine companies knew how America's elections were actually counted. When Bev downloaded the Diebold software, the wall of secrecy began to crumble. The Diebold Corporation claimed that Bev had stolen the software from their FTP internet site. The FTP site was an unfortunate situation, I admit to that. It was a situation where that information was out there, it was captured, which was our fault. We made a mistake, and we readily admit that. Will it happen again? No, it will not. I had never looked at software code in my life, but as a writer, one thing you learn to do is ask a whole lot of questions and learn as much as you can about things. I will say that I didn't want to go through it. I thought, you know, maybe I can cover this story without really learning how it works, but it wasn't to be. I had to actually learn how it works. After finding the files, you know, I sort of collected together some various computer scientists or computer programmers who could help me understand them. And Avi Rubin did an amazing study with three colleagues of his. I got a call that the Diebold code was on the web. Bev Harris had found it on Diebold's own site and so, you know, did I want to analyze it? And I said, sure. You know, I was very excited about the opportunity to analyze Diebold's code. And I think it's the first chance anyone had ever had on the outside to see what's going on inside of these electronic voting machines. Dr. Rubin found that you could hack into an election without even knowing how the system worked. The problem that Bev has discovered is, is a pretty significant security hole, and it does open the way for people uh, to really seriously manipulate the election in a way that's very difficult to detect. But it wasn't just the Diebold machines that were a concern. Sequoia, ESNS, and Diebold uh, have the lion's share of the market. In fact, ESNS and Diebold alone have about 80% of the electronic voting market. The state of Maryland had spent $55 million on a Diebold election system. They asked computer consultants Raba Technologies to test it. Raba were able to break into the machines in around 10 seconds. Bev wanted to find out if GEMS was really keeping the votes secure. And so she turned to computer security expert Dr. Hugh Thompson. I was at this massive hacker slash computer security conference and I get approached by this grandmotherly figure and, and she tells me 
that, hey, I've got access to the tabulation software from one of the biggest electronic voting manufacturers on the planet. I'm like, wow, that's very interesting. And then she says, can you take a look at it for me? I'd say the thing that shocked me was how easy vote totals could be changed. So imagine you can go into a box and essentially rewrite history. And there's no record of you rewriting history. And the only record of the history itself is the thing that you changed. And that's pretty scary to me. Bev and Hugh worked out a way to demonstrate the insecurity of gems. She was invited to appear with her computer hack on national TV with former presidential candidate Governor Howard Dean. All right, Bev, show me how to do this. Well, what we have here is the central tabulator computer. Now, in a voting system, you have all these different voting machines at all the different polling places. All those machines feed into the one machine so it can add up all the votes. So, of course, if you were going to do something you shouldn't to a voting machine, would it be more convenient to do it to the 4,000 machines or to just come in here to one machine and, and deal with all of them at once? The GEMS program is the program that is the central tabulator program. And I'm going to put in a password here. Okay, we're in. Now, this is the official program that the county supervisor sees. As we can see here, Howard Dean has 1,000 votes, and Lex Luthor has 500. So you're beating Lex Luthor, and we're... Two quite, to one. Yes, and Tiger Woods, unfortunately, doesn't have any votes yet. All right. All right, let's close this out. I was just showing you the legitimate way to go in and look at votes, which, All of right. course, you can't tamper with. Go to the Start menu, and I'm going to show you something tricky. And I want you to go to My Computer and just click that. And you're going to see some, come up, go to local disk C and go to program files. Go to central tabulator votes and then go to the sum of the candidates, which is that table. You see we have 800 votes here for you and 400 for Lex Luthor. Let's just flip those. We'll make that 400 and we'll give 100 votes to Tiger. Let's just see what happened here. We'll go back into GEMS the legitimate way. And as you can see now, Howard Dean only has 500 votes. Lex Luthor has 900 and Tiger Woods has 100 votes. Hmm. We just edited an election. It took us 90 seconds. Once again, I exhort my listeners to go to CorbettReport.com and to check the documentation for today's episode to find the link to Hacking Democracy so that you can watch that documentary in its entirety. It is an extremely powerful and succinct documentary outlining the exact details about election fraud. No longer does it have to be wondered if the elections are being stolen. It's almost a certainty. Certainly, that documentary makes it abundantly clear that the security holes in those voting machines are massive and that the companies creating them are doing nothing to patch them up. Now, there's really no doubt to anyone who's been researching the matters that the last two elections have in fact been stolen from under the Americans' noses. Of course, Greg Pallast, an excellent reporter that we've referred to in previous episodes of the Corbett Report, blew the lid off of the 2000 Florida election scandal. And the 2004 election scandal culminated in some of the election workers in Ohio being convicted of fixing the election. Again, it's not coincidence that the statistics of exit polls, which have always been used in combination with actual polling data, to predict the outcome of the election so that networks can call the election before the election is in fact finished, have for years been scientifically honed and crafted to give almost perfect results, which suddenly stopped working just as these voting machines were being introduced. Yes, that's right. Now, all of a sudden, for some reason, networks can't rely on exit polls for accurate details of how an election is going to go. And yes, now there are even articles out there, which again, you can find in the documentation section of today's episode, fretting about how networks are going to cover this year's election. Because, of course, if they rely on the exit polls, they might get bad data. No, it's not coincidence that the exit polls suddenly, for the first time in history, started going haywire just as these voting machines were being introduced. Another facet to all of this comes from a mainstream newspaper article from 2003. This information comes from the Cleveland Plain Dealer from August 28th of 2003, which published a story entitled Voting Machine Controversy. 
This story reads in part, quote, The head of a company vying to sell voting machines in Ohio told Republicans in a recent fundraising letter that he is committed to helping Ohio deliver its electoral votes to the president next year. The August 14th letter from Walden Odell, chief executive of Diebold Inc., who has become active in the re-election effort of President Bush, prompted Democrats this week to question the propriety of allowing Odell's company to calculate votes in the 2004 presidential election. End quote. Now, of course, that farce was allowed to continue, and Kerry took a dive in the 2004 presidential election, conceding the election on election night before any of the results could be challenged, and without even beginning to scratch the surface of looking into the massive voting irregularities that took place, especially in Ohio, in 2004. At any rate, the question inevitably now becomes, how is this going to play out in the 2008 presidential election. So far, all of the major news stories and a lot of the press coverage about the issue has focused very heavily on Republican connections to the voting machine companies like Diebold, ES&S, Sequoia, and other leaders of the industry. The implication has always been that the Republicans are the ones stealing the votes in every case and that this will continue. Indeed, if this is true, the polls now show Barack Obama with a hefty lead over John McCain, and it's very unlikely that McCain will be able to bridge that gap, especially now that Philip Berg's case against Barack Obama and his spurious citizenship claims has been thrown out of court. So it would now be easy to imagine an election where, going into election day, the polls all indicate Barack Obama with a hefty lead over John McCain, the exit polls further confirm that, and yet, the actual election results show McCain with a slim majority over Barack Obama. What would happen in such a case? Well, the Telegraph.co.uk has an idea from a 24th of October 2008 story. Headline, Police Fear Riots If Barack Obama Loses U.S. Election. Again, this is a very real possibility. As people are becoming more informed about the election fraud story and see it as a vast right-wing conspiracy... Obviously, supporters of Obama would be less likely to take this lying down. Once again, let's turn back to comedy for an example of this sentiment coursing through mainstream pop culture at the current time. Once again, of course, this is comedy, but it tells us important things about what the electorate is thinking. Now, we all know the Republicans steal votes like 12-year-old Chinese gymnasts steal gold medals. In 2000, it was Florida. In 04, it was Ohio. Now, in 08, they are at it again. Please welcome Democratic polling watchdog, Mr. Lance Burroughs. Lance, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Dag, as you can see, I actually brought in a voting machine that's going to be used in precincts and in all the swing states. Now, where'd you get it? Well, you know, it's a certain neighborhood where you can get anything for $12. <laughs> all right, so what's the problem? Uh, okay, uh, go ahead and cast your vote for Barack Obama. Well, who'd you think I was going to vote for? <laughs> <laughs> all right, here we go. Obama. Really? <laughs> Yeah. Do it again? Yeah, yeah. Do, uh, do it again. All right. Obama. Seriously? <laughs> Obama. You know he's black, right? <laughs> you know he's Muslim? <laughs> and he loves white girls. I know. I know. One more time. One more time. Thank you for voting for John McCain. <laughs> Damn. That is the most racist piece of machinery mm -hmm. since the slave catcher 3000. Yes. <laughs> now, Dag, my IT guy, he actually has a way to bypass the software. Thank you, Lance. Now, for all you Barack Obama supporters out there, if you see a machine like this, Beat it like it stole something. Because it almost did. Your vote.
There's no doubt that tensions are running very high at the moment, and there are a number of ways that these tensions could spill over into rioting as a result of the upcoming elections. Fears over the Republicans attempting to steal the presidency one more time would only play into these tensions and increase the likelihood of rioting. The question I put forward to my listeners today is, are we in fact being led into a situation where rioting is the expected, perhaps even the desired, result? Well, certainly the recent deployment of the 1st Infantry Brigade on their homeland tour, as reported in Army Times, is an indication that the U.S. government is preparing for the people to revolt. Again, that might be because of economic causes, the result of some sudden and extremely unpopular war, or perhaps election fraud. At any rate, it could be used as the trigger for the implementation of full-scale martial law on the streets of America. Keeping that in mind, it's important to once again snap out of the left-right paradigm and see it for what it is, a complete charade. To think that the Democrats haven't used election fraud to their advantage would be naive to say the least, and I'm certainly not referring to the acorn voter registration scandal that the Republicans are attempting to bring up as a smear against the Obama campaign. No, voter registration and voter fraud is a very different issue than election fraud. And voter fraud is a tiny, tiny percentage of the problem. Election fraud, tens of thousands, potentially even hundreds of thousands of votes being flipped or changed in central tabulating computers that govern hundreds of precincts, reporting in numerous counties, perhaps even nationwide, is the problem not voter registration or voter fraud. But regardless, the question remains, is this merely a Republican issue? And the answer, admittedly, by those pursuing the issue, is no. Once again, Bev Harris was one of the key people featured in the Hacking Democracy clips which we played earlier. So let's listen to another clip from Hacking Democracy where Bev Harris addresses this phony left-right perception of election fraud. You know, people talk about partisan ties to the voting companies, and they're right. That being said, we're also seeing that it's not quite as simple a picture. We have the state of Maryland and the state of Georgia have Democrats very tightly wed to use of the Diebold system, and it's the Republicans who are fighting against it there. And in my own home county, Seattle, King County, Washington, it's the Democrats who are pushing these systems and the Republicans who are a little bit skeptical. To reiterate, it is not important whether it is the Republicans or the Democrats committing election fraud. It is the fact that we are being indoctrinated to believe that these voting machines can ever be made safe enough to vote. That it will ever be anything different than the analogy that was provided earlier in today's episode of going to a voting booth and telling a person behind the curtain what your vote is and never getting to see what he writes down on the ballot sheet. That system cannot be allowed to be implemented if we want true and accurate elections. At any rate, it is too late to change things in 2008. These machines are here, they are going to be used, and there will doubtless be election fraud taking place. It seems like a hopeless situation, and indeed the title of today's episode certainly does indicate that hopelessness. Your vote doesn't count. There is indeed no way to ensure that your vote counts, or that anyone's vote counts in such a system. Is the situation hopeless? Well, to reflect the perspective that it is indeed hopeless, let's turn to comedian George Carlin, who was, of course, no stranger to putting socio-political commentary into a comedic context. And, of course, being George Carlin, there is a language advisory on this clip. If you are sensitive, please fast-forward through this clip. Let's listen to George Carlin on voting. So I have solved this little political dilemma for myself in a very simple way. On election day, I stay home. I don't vote. Fuck them. Fuck them. I don't vote. Two reasons. Two reasons I don't vote. First of all, it's meaningless. This country was bought and sold and paid for a long time ago. The shit they shuffle around every four years... <laughs> 
doesn't mean a fucking thing. And secondly, I don't vote because I believe if you vote, you have no right to complain. People like to twist that around, I know. They say, they say, well, if you don't vote, you have no right to complain. But where's the logic in that? If you vote and you elect dishonest, incompetent people and they get into office and screw everything up, well, you are responsible for what they have done. You caused the problem. You voted them in. You have no right to complain. I, on the other hand, who did not vote, who did not vote, who, in fact, did not even leave the house on election day, am in no way responsible for what these people have done and have every right to complain as loud as I want about the mess you created that I had nothing to do with. So I know that a little later on this year you're going to have another one of those really swell presidential elections that you like so much. You'll enjoy yourselves. It'll be a lot of fun. I'm sure as soon as the election is over, your country will improve immediately. As for me, I'll be home on that day doing essentially the same thing as you. The only difference is when I get finished masturbating, I'm going to have a little something to show for it, folks. Thank you very much. Is that the answer? Complete apathy? Staying home on election day? Nothing can be done? I posit to my listeners that this is in fact not the answer. That this form of apathy is in fact a planned part of the biopoly system whereby two wings of the same bird of prey keep us flapping, propelling us ever onwards towards tyranny, statism, fascism, socialism, and other modes of control. The answer to this system is not to sit at home and wait for things to change of their own accord, something which is abundantly evident to anyone who is following the news behind the news is that a vote for Obama is a vote for Brzezinski, a vote for McCain is a vote for Brzezinski, a vote for Obama is a vote for Wall Street, a vote for McCain is a vote for Wall Street. There is no difference between the two sides of the same coin. And this is something that's been confirmed time and time again by such people as Carol Quigley, the insiders who wrote the real history of the American political system which we outlined in episode 58. No, the key to destroying the system is to expose the system, to show that it's a transparent sham, that they're giving us a false illusion of choice between two things which are in fact the same thing. The answer is not to sit at home and wait for things to change. The answer is to vote third party and to watch the vote like a hawk. Now for my American listeners out there who are preparing for Election Day and wondering how they can get involved in a meaningful way during this election, I suggest you go to blackboxvoting.org. Again, this is the homepage of Bev Harris, the election fraud expert cited in Hacking Democracy. On that page, you'll find numerous resources about what you can do as an average citizen to combat this problem of election fraud. Things that might seem very mundane, very quotidian, but which are nonetheless absolutely essential for the maintenance of a free and functioning voting system. At the very least, I would suggest you watch the video on the front page about watching the vote on the night of the election and what you can do. Unfortunately, I can't play the audio as it doesn't translate very well without the video. But I would suggest all of my listeners, even foreign listeners who might not be in America, watch that video as it provides a pretty good overview of what can be done in the American elections, and I'm sure a lot of the information translates to other countries around the world. It is only by engaging this system and showing the election fraud to the electorate that we will ever be able to make any type of change in the system. The government certainly isn't going to do it. The voting machine companies certainly aren't going to do it. The election officials certainly aren't going to do it. It is only an informed electorate taking back the system and watching it like a hawk that will ever be able to return the system to one governed by and for the people. Freedom is most certainly not free, and it must be fought for tooth and nail every inch of the way. We are currently hanging by our fingernails and about to lose even the illusion of free and fair elections which we have hitherto been allowed to have by the dark overlords cited in that Onion news piece. It's time to rip the mask off the system once and for all and expose it for what it is. 
get information about election fraud out to everyone that you can in the coming weeks and then get involved. That's it for today's episode of The Corbett Report. Thank you for joining me, and join me again next week for another edition. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking. Everybody knows the captain lied. Everybody got this broken feeling. Like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates in the long stem Well, Robert, I had congressmen on two weeks ago. They were told, you pass the bailout or we're going to declare martial law. And then the Army Times reported they're going to deploy army brigades to the U.S. to, quote, deal with insurrection. I mean... They have designed all of this, and then they create the crisis, and then they pose as the solution. Uh, it, it's the cold-bloodedness. It's, it, it, it's that, it, I mean, they are cold-blooded, organized, and they, they know what they're going to do, and they're not going to stop. Well, if they can steal two elections in front of the watchful eye of the American public, they can do anything.